Hi, folks, and welcome once again to the Lex Rex Institute podcast. We've got a lot of exciting material for you guys today, broadcasting on a Wednesday, which is unusual for us. Yep, that's true. Um, we had some scheduling conflicts that we wanted to to make sure got sorted out. Uh, basically, we're going to be telling you, or Haberbush is going to be telling you something that will be relevant on Wednesday, but wouldn't be relevant earlier. I actually don't know what he's going to say, so I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> it's a surprise. We do have a major filing that, if you're listening to this on the day that it comes out, occurred yesterday, Tuesday. Uh, what's the date? That's <laughs> March... 14th? 6th? March 6th, I'm sorry. No, 7th. 7th. March, yeah. <laughs> March 7th. We'll get there eventually, right. yeah. yeah. Uh, but before we get to that, let's uh, go ahead and listen to our intro. Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, We the people. So we the people meeting on a Wednesday this time. So I guess a couple, a couple big announcements. Big one that uh, just came out is we filed a brief in a case challenging San Francisco's law that allows non-citizens to vote in school board elections. So we filed an amicus brief in that case. That was filed yesterday as you're listening to this. And we will post a link to that in our description. You can read that. That was filed along with Public Interest Legal Foundation. That is Christian Adams' law firm. He's a big name in election law, but sort of an exciting case that we're working on. And anything, other news. Anything else you want to say about that, or is that it? Well, it, it's so our challenge was sort of along limited lines because it's an amicus brief, so it's sort of peripheral to the overall case. But why don't, why don't we take a second? Because I'm not sure how many people are actually going to know what that means, but just in, you know, shortest possible time, what's an amicus brief? Yeah, so amicus is friends of the court. That's what amicus means is is friend, I think. Yeah. Um, my Latin's yeah. not great. <laughs> I, I think that's correct, yeah. Uh, but basically it means it's a brief filed by someone who is not a party in that lawsuit, so not the plaintiff or defendant, in support yeah. of either the plaintiff or defendant. So usually they'll address a more limited line of attack or something that didn't get addressed in one of the briefs on the merits. And I can't go into all our strategy for filing this, but basically our focus was narrow. Uh, and it was on what's called voter disenfranchisement or vote dilution. Uh, and mm -hmm. our argument is that by drawing district lines, and in particular by allowing votes from persons who are not citizens of the United States, the votes of citizens of the United States are diluted. They're worth less because other people who really shouldn't have a stake are permitted to vote. But if you want to read more about that, you can click on the link in our description. And the other news is here. Actually, David doesn't know this one either. Uh, I just picked up this engagement ring today. It's not in focus there. Uh, so hopefully by the time this comes out, I'll have an answer. And hopefully the answer is not no. Uh, but, <laughs> but I guess we'll it'll know for certain really, by then. It'll be really awkward if it is, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, you can cut this part if it is. Uh, but no, I am. Um... Yeah, you'll have to tell me if... If that happens. <laughs> so I, I will be asking Kristen to marry me uh, this Saturday. We're going where we went for our first date. So that's exciting news in my life. Yeah. And as she's an employee of the Institute, it's exciting news for the Institute as well. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, yeah. Okay. I didn't know either of those things. <laughs> Here, let me, let me anyway. bring it to better focus. That was terrible. Uh, okay. Let's turn this... The only 
There you go. You can see why I'm not the videographer. But anyway, <laughs> so if, if you're listening to this, there's a reason to check it out on YouTube. So you can see what we're talking about. Yeah, that's a, a uh, green sapphire. I was gonna say it didn't. It didn't look terribly diamondy, but there you no, go. No, uh, I don't. I don't buy into the whole De Beers propaganda. Anyway, we do have an actual show to get to, uh, so we should probably get into the program. Plus, Kristen likes color, so that that's the actual reason. It's not just sort of spite yeah. for the De Beers company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so just a, a forecast of what's ahead. We are going to be continuing our series on the Russian Revolution, which we're calling Red February. It is no longer February, but in this episode, we're actually going to be talking about the February Revolution. So that was really the reason <laughs> we called it that to begin with. And then anyway, our next so, episode is going to be October, right? We're going to wait it, several well, months and then release the next one. Uh, not quite. We're, I think we're also going to touch on the October Revolution as well. But uh, the episode after this, we will finish up with the, the Russian Revolution by talking about the Soviet constitutions. So you can look forward to that next time. But before yeah, we, we do we that... We were supposed to cover a bit of legal news first, right? Yes. Yes. Before we get to that, on the, Feb, uh, excuse me, on the 28th of February, which was last week when we're recording this, um, or rather last week from when you hear this, excuse me, the Supreme Court heard oral argument in a pair of cases pertaining to the Biden administration's student debt relief program, one right. Biden v. Nebraska and the other Department of Education v. Brown, not crucially, not Brown v. Board of Education. That's a different uh, <laughs> different case. But when I was trying to find information about this one, Google uh -huh. thought I was talking about that one. Yeah, I don't think Google uh, pays attention to word order. I think or, or apparently the difference between a board and a department. So I had to right. add Department of Education v. Brown 2023 to get to, to what I was looking for. But this is an issue we've talked about before, right? Student, President Biden's student yeah. loan forgiveness program, which for those of you who are not familiar, I think most people probably are. But basically, uh, if it were to be upheld by unilateral fiat, President Joe Biden has decided he's going to erase from the books... I think it's $10,000 each for individuals filing and 20000 for people who are filing jointly, something like that. It's for um, so, yeah, for, for people with student loan debts making, I think it's under $125,000 a year, which that's probably most, the vast majority of, them, of people yeah. Yeah, who hold student loan debts. Uh, if you're filing singly uh, and I think just directly double that if you file as a, as a married couple. Uh, cancellation up to ten thousand dollars of each, you know, each individual's debt who who qualifies that way, and I think Pell Grant recipients is the qualification to get the twenty thousand dollar cancellation, which is the, okay. the the upper limit. But yeah, but obviously a, a grossly unfair program. Uh, we've complained about it before. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's a tax, right? It's everybody who didn't get student loans is paying for the people who did. I, I, they can try to couch it as as debt forgiveness, but really it is an expenditure of money because debt yeah. is money. Debt's just negative money. Right, yeah. You know, so this is money that's coming out of the budget. It will be made up some other way. They're not just going to decide to slash the budget um, right. as much as and, we might want them to. <laughs> and those of us who did not get student loans are the ones who have to pay for it, which I, I see that as sort of grossly regressive in character because at least theoretically, if you've been to college, you now have a higher earning potential, Right. So yeah. we're taking people that have that higher earning potential and subsidizing them at the expense of people who you know, maybe made more responsible decisions, didn't get that, or maybe 
by circumstance were forced to make decisions where they didn't get that. But either way, people who are less able to earn higher wages are subsidizing those who are more able to do so. Obviously kind of grossly regressive. You know, yeah. I, I think for, for those of us who, you know, personally, I went to law school and I wasn't going to go to law school unless I could find a place that would pay for my tuition. Uh, you know, I was very blessed and did well on the LSAT and found a place that would do that. But, you know, that that's there were schools that were more highly ranked that I was accepted to that I did not attend because I was planning my life around the expectation of having to pay student loans. I'm sure very many people are in that situation. So being forced to yeah. subsidize somebody else's student loans, I think if that were upheld, would be sort of an egregious miscarriage of justice. So yeah. what what but the cases themselves, they're not focusing on that particular issue. Now, I, no. I know that. For a while, I think Claremont, I know we were considering bringing a challenge on the basis of the spending clause, which is basically, you know, House of Representatives has the authority to spend money. President doesn't have that. If he wants to spend money, he has to go to Congress and make sure they authorize him to do it. He didn't do that. That's the challenge that I would have liked to see. This challenge is not on those grounds. So what grounds are these two challenges on? Yeah. So essentially... Both of the challenges, and we'll get into the differences between the two cases, but the, the sort of the positive argument that they're making against the government's plan is that the statute the government is relying on, which is the HEROES Act, we talked about that before as well, that's you yeah. know basically uh, authorizing the executive branch to make modifications to programs in the event of a national emergency. Oh, and dro claiming... drop a link to the video where we talk about that too. So has it been on the podcast or just on the Remedial Civic series? I, we definitely talked about aspects of this before on the podcast. I think before we were doing this as video, but we'll, you know, we'll, we'll figure yeah. out where, where we've talked about this before. I, I know that we talked know. about that with uh, John Ahrens, too, when he was doing the uh, hmm. Remedial Civic series. So put a link to both of those so people aren't left searching for them. Yeah, but basically, you know, because, because the, what the government is leaning on is this act has these emergency circumstances, powers, COVID counts as that. So we're just going to lean on that. And basically, right. it's, it's challenges to the interpretation of the statute that the government is leaning on. Right. Yep. That's So <laughs> that brings into effect our old friend, you know, ah, oh, my old friend, we meet again. <laughs> and who's that old friend? Well, the Chevron Doctrine. Yeah. And... Yeah, that What's one the Chevron have, Doctrine, David? We have absolutely <laughs> talked about this on the podcast before. So I'll keep if you've listened brief. to this podcast at all, yeah. except for maybe our very last episode, you know about the Chevron Doctrine. But basically it means that courts must defer to the interpretation of administrative agencies of, mm -hmm. of acts of Congress unless those interpretations are unreasonable. Yeah. So, and, yeah. so that, that's really the, the main question. So what, what's the actual what's the actual text of the statute of the Hero Act that's at issue here? So in the, in these cases in particular, the big focus is on a couple of verbs from that law: waive and modify. Right. So the the government is authorized to waive or modify sort of individual aspects of a, of an existing program in the event of emergency. The question is whether this qualifies or if well, this goes I think beyond that. that. The, the power to modify, as I understand, in the statute is a little bit broader than the power to waive, right? Because they can modify a whole program because, yep. you know, modification means you're just changing certain aspects of that program. Whereas waiver, they can't get rid of an entire program through waiver. They can only waive certain provisions of that yep. program. 
So, and, so the issue of whether or not this constitutes a waiver of those those student loans that have been incurred, or just merely a modification of those loans, is going to be pivotal to this case. Yeah, and another another aspect of this was that the statute limits what what can be done in order to prevent basically harm to individuals. Mm -hmm. The idea being, if there's an emergency that would cause financial distress, because we talked about this before, but the HEROES Act was basically implemented for people who were going to go to war. With, After 9-11. Yeah, with, yeah. with debt uh, from coming back home, having done their service and being worse off financially. So the idea was we want to prevent harm from them, uh, excuse me, harm from being done to them because of an, an, an event of national emergency. Right. So here we're uh, saying uh, that COVID-19 is an emergency, which may have made people who graduated uh, earn less. Yeah. You know, I, I think we took, Lex Rex took plenty of opportunities during COVID-19. So I'm not sure that actually <laughs> would have hamstrung anybody, but not everybody's in our situation. I'll grant them that. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. COVID-19 made them earn less. They're arguing that is the sort of emergency that would bring into effect these powers. Yeah. And, and a, a part of it too was, you know, there are certain people for whom this amount of loan forgiveness will just wipe out their debt. So they'll, they'll won't have any payments anymore. And so the question, you know, in part is, are those people actually just having, you know, is this harm prevention for them or is this actually just giving them a, a benefit basically mm -hmm. they wouldn't otherwise have had? Right. Um, and it's again, not, it's not deferring payment. Right. Uh, it's not lowering the interest rate. It's not, um, you know, you can, uh, rather than having a 10-year term, you can have a 15-year term on this and your payment can be a little bit less. That would be a modification of the terms yeah. of, of their their repayment. But here it's just, well, it's $10,000 lower now. Yeah. And I feel like out of context, we're going to sound very um, sort of uh, bitter and spiteful when we're talking about, like, you know, how dare we, uh, you know, make things easier for people. The, the thing to bear in mind, again, which you did mention at the beginning of this, I just want to reiterate. Other people have to bear the expense for this. Well, and, and here's it's the thing. is, you know, Here's the point I want to make every time we address this issue. Our bankruptcy laws are so draconian and unfair when it comes to student loan debts. There's basically no way to get out from under this stuff. You know, everything else, we've, we've got an escape valve for any other kind of debt that you incur. Obviously, you don't want to file bankruptcy. There are built-in consequences for doing that. Your credit will right. be hurt for a long time. You can only do it. You know, it's not something you can do again and again repeatedly in a short period of time. There are consequences to it. They're built into the system. Well, all of these student loan uh, debts were specifically given carve-outs in the 2006 modifications to the bankruptcy law such that they are not dischargeable in bankruptcy. If yeah. we really want to give these people... Because I understand a lot of people incurred tons of debt for school. A lot of people want to get out from under that. If we really want to enable them to do that, Relaxing the bankruptcy law was the way to do it. Not just an outright, poof, somebody else is paying for your loan now. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, especially because this program doesn't do anything for future generations. You know, this isn't going to apply to anybody, you know, in like the number of people who have substantial student loan debt probably is a, a serious issue facing the economy. Sure. But just doing this as a one-off thing isn't going to help anybody who didn't go to college at a very specific time. And if we don't change the way that that system works in broader strokes, including, as you mentioned, very pertinently, the bankruptcy system, it doesn't do anything for the future. Yeah, well, it's a very short-sighted we, We've got a legal, a legal constitutionally recognized, you know, bankruptcy laws are mentioned in the Constitution. 
that Congress yeah. is supposed to set uniform laws of bankruptcy. We have a way of dealing with out-of-control debts. That already yeah. exists. Let's not make it impossible to deal with student loans. That's the reason why there's a crisis on this issue, and it's very easy to fix. Yep. But anyway, so to get particularly into these cases, let's start with Biden v. Nebraska, which I believe was the first charge. That's, that's a state challenging the law, right? Yeah, yeah. A, gr a group of states, but it's sort of yeah, so remember, centered to around. Allege, to bring a lawsuit, you have to allege harm. Uh, yeah. The person who is bringing the lawsuit actually has to be the person harmed. That's a central component of the idea of standing, which we've talked about a lot before. So what's the harm to Nebraska here? Yeah. So interestingly, despite the fact that Nebraska is the only state named in sort of the short form of the case, it's actually really more about Missouri because Missouri created ah. this corporate entity to service student loans. They call it MOHILA. It's, it's an acronym uh, like Higher Education Loan Authority of the it's, state of Missouri. Yeah. Um, Some but, financial institution to manage student loans. Sure. Yeah. Go on. And it, it's uh, it's operated as a corporation, but it's sort of, you know, one of those quasi-public sort of things like Amtrak or something. Like, like we that. all love. Yeah. Our favorite yeah. ones are all those. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, that, I, that's the characterizing feature of fascism, you know? Corporatism, yeah. Um, yeah, that's when you have corporations that are kind of quasi-public uh, like that. That's mm -hmm. that is the central feature of fascism. I mean, they can talk about militarism and all the rest of it. Those are kind of the trappings. What actually makes fascism fascism is that corporatist system. So, you know, FYI, yeah. Fun, fun fact. <laughs> yeah, fun fact. That's fascist. <laughs> but, so this entity, Mohila, services a bunch of of student loan debts. Excesses that they bring in, like beyond what they're operating budget is gets paid back to Missouri into a fund that offers financial aid to students. So Missouri is That was saying, very complicated, David. A little simpler. <laughs> so, it, it, all right, fair enough. I'll, I'll try I'll see if I can Some of our eyes questions. start glazing over as soon as you start talking about <laughs> Okay. So Missouri created an entity to handle student loans. Any profits that entity makes go into a fund that the state maintains to provide financial aid to other students. So if, if students are paying less on their student loans, this corporation yeah. makes less of a profit. That affects the state's coffers. Ergo, the state is harmed. Right. That's that's the argument. And, you know, the, the it gets slightly more complicated in that if Mohila, that entity, suffers losses, the state isn't liable. That was part of the, the whole argument, hashing out, should we treat this entity? Well, that's kind of silly. Well, <laughs> you know, I think a better argument is that it, it depends on the voluntary action of the state that it's harmed here. They didn't have to create this entity. Yeah. And a key factor even if, here, even if they make less profit, that's still harm. Yeah. It's not merely the fact that the state's not liable. That's silly. That's a dumb argument. Yeah. Well, it, another one of the arguments was that Mohila itself declined to sue. And Irrelevant. One of the, one of the reasons it well, one of the reasons it gave was that it didn't anticipate actually generating any real profit, and it gave a report to that effect. Okay, so they're the, saying the, okay. Well, that 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 is a that is yeah. a test. You know, if the profits are unduly speculative, then you can't allege harm. So right, and I haven't you know I haven't read their financials. I don't know if that you know if that forecast was accurate or not. Mohila is saying we weren't. It seems like it'd be actually, hard not to turn a profit on unforgivable student loans. You'd think, um, but maybe <laughs> if you're not maybe making a profit have, on that, like you must work for the government. Maybe they have just absurd delinquency rates and no collection mechanism. I don't know. You know who knows? But that, <laughs> or maybe, that was maybe a, there's a little bit of overhead. Maybe they hired you know a bunch of bureaucrats on bureaucrat salaries. Possibly. 
What is that? Fire alarm. Well, we're back after that rude interruption, uh, as you can probably see from how we're dressed. It's not the same day. David, how long did that go on? Uh, it was about an hour and a half or so before I was able to get back into the building, and that put it uh, pretty close to midnight here in Scotland. Um, wow. Is that I, a, that's a regular know. occurrence there? <laughs> I think there's been about uh, 10 fire alarms uh, since September when I moved into this building. Um, wow. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know that I've ever heard a fire alarm that sounded so effete. You, you, uh, yeah, you made, the, you made that comment to me. Um, <laughs> I don't really know what to tell you. I will observe for anyone who's, uh, who's noticed I am wearing the same sweatshirt, but it is a different t-shirt underneath. So I have changed my clothes just to, just to be clear. <laughs> I, I haven't washed the shirt I was wearing last time. So <laughs> I, <it's, laughs> anyway. I may look a little bit different, but that's fine. So I think we were in the middle of discussing Bi Biden v. Nebraska. That's right. When we left off. Um, I don't know what we were saying about that. <laughs> <laughs> so we we talked a bit about the issue of standing being seemingly what the government is trying to emphasize, trying to disqualify this suit basically on the grounds that the, the states lack standing. And then we had just started, I think, to get into the sort of the, the substantive argument that the states are making, which is that the statute in question, the HEROES Act, doesn't actually authorize the government to do what they want to do with this debt relief program. And... I think we had mentioned, and if, if we hadn't, I'll just say it now, it really hinges on whether or not this plan to just sort of forgive a certain amount of debt qualifies as a waiver or modification under yeah. the terms of the, the HEROES Act. I think so, we did mention that, yeah. Yeah, so, so let me, I, I pulled up the text of the HEROES Act, which it, it refers back to a prior higher education act that basically created the whole scheme of federal loans to begin with. So when it says Title IV, that's what it's talking about. But what it says about waivers and modifications is this. Notwithstanding any other provision of law, unless enacted with specific reference to the section, the Secretary of Education may waive or modify any statutory or regular provision applicable to the student financial assistance programs under Title IV of the Act. And that's that prior act okay. of 1965. Sure. So to me... The, the key point there is it's waiving or modifying provisions of a program. Uh -huh. And that seems to be what the states are, are taking up here as well, saying you can't just say that writing off a certain amount of the debt is, is modifying or waiving a provision. You're just sort of getting rid doing of it this out of nowhere. entirely. Yeah. yeah that's so, that, so that, that's certainly argument, a broad reading of waiver or modification. Yeah. So, so there are and, and I, yeah, so sort of the, I think sort of the government's argument here, the, the federal government's argument was, well, it's a waiver and a modification, right? Yeah. <laughs> which which yeah, that, is ironic said, because yeah. it, sa it says waive or modify, doesn't it? Yeah. and It doesn't uh, say waive and modify. You know, it's, that may, right. Maybe there's a section in the definition saying that uh, all ors and all ands are to be read as and ors, but I kind of doubt it. So. Yeah, I, I don't think that's in here. This is actually, this one, unlike the, the 1965 Act, is actually a, a fairly short uh, law as far as federal law goes. Um, I don't believe that's in there. Yeah, if it's got to be both of those things, good chance it's neither of those things. And <laughs> yeah. your authority. That's... Which which has led the states to say, this isn't waiving or modifying. This is just flat out a new program that you're uh -huh. sort of parading around under the guise of being a, a, a waiver or modification. Sure. So I think we got some audio, some clips from the Supreme Court. Justice is talking about this. Um, 
Do you want to play that we right now? do. Well, could you explain then, in, in, in other provisions, uh, there is express language as to cancellation. And, of course, there is it here. Uh, so would you take a minute to explain how a waiver or modification amounts to a waiver, to a cancellation? Just to be clear, he's talking about cancellation here because there is a separate provision of the HEROES Act for canceling a program, which, you know, one would think just getting rid of the debt amounts to. That's it's effectively a cancellation of something, right? I mean, people refer to this as the debt cancellation case. So <laughs> at least colloquially, that's the case. But anyway, he's asking about why it's not that instead of waiver. I'm sorry, why it isn't that rather than waiver or modification, as the government's claiming. So go ahead and play the clip, David. Of course. So the secretary identified various provisions in Title IV that govern the terms and conditions of student loans and also govern discharge and cancellation in other circumstances, as your question suggested. And I think the straightforward way to think about how the verbs map on to the secretary's action is that he waived elements of those provisions that contain eligibility requirements for discharge and cancellation that are inapplicable under this program, and then modified the provisions to contain the limitations that he had announced as part and parcel of announcing this loan forgiveness. Now, you had suggested that there's no express statement in the HEROES Act to discharge loan principal, and, and that's true, but the relevant and operative language here is the provision that says the Secretary is empowered to waive or modify any Title IV provision. And so the HEROES Act isn't enumerating any of the various forms of relief that have long been authorized and implemented under this statute. I don't think anything can be read into the fact that there's no express reference to particular forms of relief because Congress was trying to broadly cover the field and ensure that the secretary had the tools to respond to the national emergency with whatever relief might be necessitated. And we're, we're about to so hear uh, Justice John Roberts in a second. but You don't get any kind of answer to that question until the last sentence there, which is basically <laughs> we think the congressional grant of power was broad, right? Yeah. By, by just saying um, wave or modify, they're saying they're using very broad language there. It refers to basically any change we could possibly want to make. In a, nutshell. Uh, in a nutshell was what that answer was. Yeah, and that, that's sort of what uh, Justice Roberts is uh, is going to ask about in a second. I, I find it kind of hilarious, she says, you know, the way that the, the verbs map onto the language of the statute. I mean, it's very clear that they decided to do one thing and then post hoc <laughs> tried to, using her words, map that onto the text of the statute. They didn't, yeah. they didn't look at the statute and say, are we authorized to do this thing? They did the thing and then tried to justify it using the statute. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's pretty clear overall, I think, based on... And we talked about this last time we talked about the HEROES Act. The HEROES Act was basically meant to help military personnel. It's pretty uh -huh. clear that they just wanted to do this, and then they were like, this is as good a basis as... Well, I just, I just find it, you know, I don't know if hilarious is the right word, maybe disgusting, <laughs> but I, I find it absurd that she would basically acknowledge that in her answer. Yeah. But anyway... Uh, Let's, let's hear a little more, though. But um, in, in an opinion we had a few years ago uh, by Justice Scalia, he talked about what, what the word modify means. And uh, it's, he said modified, in our view, connotes moderate change. He said it might be good English to say that the French Revolution modified the status of the French nobility, yeah. but only because there's a figure of speech called understatement and a literary device mm -hmm. known as sarcasm. 
We're talking about half a trillion dollars uh, and 43 million Americans. That was a good one. How does that fit under the normal understanding of modifying? So, of course, I recognize that in MCI, Justice Scalia's opinion adopted a narrower understanding of that term, but I don't read that opinion to set forth a universal meaning of modify, no matter the statutory context. And here, of course, we have a broader phrase, waive or modify. Waive or modify. It's undisputed, and the states aren't contesting that the ordinary meaning of waive means to eliminate an obligation in its entirety. And I think if you look at that phrase in the context of the statute, that means that modify has to mean making a change up to the point of wholesale elimination. Positive. It would be I feel like the word That's she might uh, be having trouble with here is or. Yeah, I was going to yeah, say that. It's, uh, it's, the fact the fact that wave encompasses more activity than modify mm-hmm. does not mean that modify applies more broadly than its colloquial usage. Yeah. Um, if it had so said, I think that to... or might be the one she's having trouble with. I mean, lawyers can have this issue sometime. We know that. Uh, Former President Clinton had trouble with the word is, uh, I guess, or is another one that lawyers can have trouble with. He, he at least had questions about the word is, um, whether or not. They I, I, I had a law professor my, my first semester in law school, and he loved to say, because, you know, they, they like to teach Socratically. They ask questions. They kind of interrogate the students. And, and he, his favorite phrase was, guys, you don't leave your brains at the door to this classroom. Like, or means what it colloquially means in a legal context. This, I find this whole interchange yeah. absurd. The way she's reading it, it would be something more like, you know, modify even wave provisions. Right, yeah, that yeah, would yeah. sort yeah. of support the, the, the reading she's giving to it. Um, right. But, or, that's that's trickier. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Just, just a little bit more, I think, uh, until we get to the end of, uh, of uh, Justice Roberts' comments. But Really strange for Congress to say you can eliminate obligations altogether or tweak them just the littlest bit, but you can't do anything in between. Well, but it's waived particular reg- regulatory or statutory provisions. That's that right. That, to me, uh-huh. suggests a much more focused use of the word. Yeah, and I think that that's sort of the heart of the uh-huh. issue is – you know, what provisions are you waiving? It seems like you're really just sort of pulling at straws to say that you're doing that at all, as opposed to just saying everyone gets 10 grand, basically. Uh-huh. Yeah. We're, we're waiving the provision that requires liability for the debt in the first place, right? right. So we, we have a program that creates the student loan for which there is a debt obligation, and now we're waiving that. You know, where mm-hmm. <laughs> if you did that, you should waive the fact that you gave them the loan in the first place, right? Because that'd be waiving the actual provision. That's you're not waiving anything. Yeah. You're just handing them ten thousand yeah. dollars. That's not a waiver. Just to say, there's also some issues here about whether the the actual entity involved the we mentioned earlier, Mohila, the the quasi yeah. private state entity yeah. from Missouri. Was it Missouri? Yeah, it's Missouri. Yeah, uh, so. But there is an issue here whether or not they're a state actor. Yeah. We'll probably get into state actor doctrine one of these days, but for today we got to move on. So that's Yeah, and you know, just know that there are other issues in this case. So Yeah. yeah. And and when this case is decided, which probably won't be for a few months, um we we may have occasion to come back to that issue, but Yeah. Uh anyway, uh we're going to move on now to part 2 of our series on the Russian Revolution. Red February, even though it's now March. Science.
That's right. Part two of Red February. <laughs> so it's technically March. Not no technically about it. We're going to be <laughs> a few days into March by the time this airs. Um, but yeah, but Red we, February. We, we are talking about the February Revolution this time. Some other stuff as well. But we're going to start with the February Revolution. And we're going to talk... This time around, it's still sort of more table setting. We're going to talk about why efforts at something other than communism fell, uh, fell apart in Russia before we go into what the communists really did when they got the, you know, the, the control of the country. Sure. But so last time around, we talked about some of the things that were making the, the czar look a little wobbly on his throne. And without going too much into historical detail, um, all of that gets a whole lot worse with World War I for a variety of reasons, um, mostly how bad <laughs> the Russian military turned out to be at fighting yeah. World War I. I mean, like, like we saw last week, when the Tsar turned out to be really bad at prosecuting the war with Japan, that he'd bragged yeah. would be, you know, super easy. easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, not so great for him. Turns out yeah. World War One I and mean, a much bigger conflict. Oh, boy. And, and yeah. occurring closer to the more populous parts of Russia yeah. is and, only going to exacerbate the problem. Yeah. And, in, you know, the, the reasons Russia gave for going into the war were very much ones of sort of national honor. You know, they, they you can you can do re- your own reading uh, if you're interested in the history. But basically, you know, they, they staked a lot of prestige on their performance in the war. And yeah. did just well, we talked terribly. last time. Russia's got a little bit of an inferiority complex at this point. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. they are well behind the rest of Europe. Everybody else got rid of feudalism about a thousand years earlier. <laughs> <laughs> They're still hanging Something on to like it. Something like that. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> maybe not quite that long, but it's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly not within living memory for anybody else in Europe. Yeah, and so you know you have mass conscription going on. That's rarely if ever popular uh certainly Mm. wasn't popular in this case you also have a very high casualty rate and very bad logistics and right that's which tends to happen when the rest of the world has tanks and motorized vehicles while you are using horses Uh, they Uh have guns and you have bayonets they have ammunition and you have hope yeah (laughs) when uh when most armies generally send each man out with a gun and you're sending about three men per gun. Um, it's the people's gun in the, in the, comment, <laughs> or in the Russians case. So, <laughs> yeah. And you also, one gun, know, one it, gun per every, I think like five soldiers. In it's yeah. Something absurd. They were massively yeah. under equipped. Um, and this is something I was reading about that. I, I think probably didn't help. Uh, they, you know, we talked about their, you know, lateness in eliminating feudalism. That lingered even longer in the army. So superior officers were supposed to be addressed by titles like Your Excellency instead of just like Sir or their military right. rank. Well, Sir um, sir means they're a knight, doesn't it? So if you call them Sir, that's, <laughs> that's still kind of feudal in a way, isn't it? Uh, you know, it's. I, I think that actually depends on... on the specific language, but at any rate, like, like, you sir, know. like Sir Elton John. I mean, if you're addressing him <laughs> uh. and, uh, you know, you, enlisted men, common soldiers could be forced to do like menial chores for their officers, you know, like go fetching their, their stuff, not just military duties, like personal sort of servant type stuff, all of which was very unpopular. Uh, uh-huh. and... well, popular for the officers, but there's fewer of them. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> but 
the officers also had a very, very high casualty rate. Um, lots of them died. Lots of them had to be replaced basically by, you know, somewhat educated peasants. Uh, mm. And that sort of, you know, that group were very susceptible to anti-war propaganda. Uh, they were always suspicious of their officers. We, we mentioned last time, Germans in the nobility were viewed with suspicion. Turns out a lot of them are in the military. And the Empress was from a German family. And when you're fighting the Germans, uh, that doesn't go down great with the with the men. It, cert it certainly makes your messaging more difficult, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. if, if you want to rile the people up against the enemy, it's sort of directly at odds with fealty to their commanding officers. So right. you're, you're going to be uh, a little bit limp-wristed with at least one of the two. Yeah, and so widespread suspicion starts to build up that not only, you know, not just that the war is going badly, but the, the war is going badly on purpose because there's a conspiracy right. among all of these Germans in the in the court and in the military to lose the war intentionally so that Germany gains at the expense of Russia. So and they, it, seem, they, it seems they erred on the side of anti-German propaganda. <laughs> yes, and, and that eventually starts to include the entire royal family. So they're all under suspicion of being secretly pro-German. The Tsar's popularity basically plummets uh, in the military. Right. And you know, much in the manner of accusing a U.S. president of being in the pocket of Russia. <laughs> yeah, is, uh, there's there's a parallel there. <laughs> is sort of a, a, a classic tactic of fomenting revolution and pushing your country to communism. <laughs> uh, no comment on that one. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, all of this comes to a head, though. In February, again, red February of 1917, when basically bad weather brings the whole transportation system to a halt back in Russia. Hmm. Nobody, again, nobody about... could have predicted that in Russia. <laughs> yeah, we, we talked before about how fragile their rail system was, how you know new and underdeveloped it had been. It's not adequate uh, when basically any part of it shuts down. And in this case, it, it meant that Basically, food wasn't getting to St. Petersburg, the capital. Yeah. They had like the one line in a lot of places. Yeah. So yeah. if it got shut down, there was no way in. That's... Right. And they, they had food. They just couldn't get it where it had to be. And so, you know, agitation starts, demonstrations start, and then the government announces, hey, we're going to have to ration. And that's where things right. get bad. And we yeah. get a second So, so because Sunday. of sort of a a um a foreign policy crisis that had been entered into by a group of elites that the average person didn't really care about yeah. um ends up creating artificial scarcity at home mm -hmm. probably creates widespread inflation oh yeah yeah not things a, a that familiar. we would be familiar with at all <laughs> uh <laughs> Sure. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> we, we only get involved in conflicts when America has some interest in them, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, <laughs> splendid isolation continues to be strong. Right. <laughs> I'll leave the, the modern-day parallels to your imagination, but eventually the, you know... Yeah, no, we, actually, we actually did skip over that. Russia did not have much of an interest in the First World War. No, That's, outside of... In fact, of... very few countries... 
alliances. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, general yeah. uh, commitment to Slavophilia, basically, you know, oh, something's happening to other Slavic people. <laughs> We're the, the right. most powerful Slavs. We want to be involved. So that's, that's, you know, right. nationalism. Which, which, a, fe which feeds part. into the anti-German sentiment, by the way, because oh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. sort of ethno-nationalism that brought about that commitment. Yeah. So, yeah, you know. definitely. Anyway, the the street demonstrations once again turned bloody when uh, the military uh, once again fires on demonstrators. You'd think they'd have learned not to do that at this point. But they hadn't. <laughs> um, and, That's not funny. I shouldn't laugh at that. That's <laughs> well, but uh, it triggers a, a military mutiny in the capital. And to make a very long story short, the czar is eventually pressured by all the, the high military officials to abdicate which he which he does yeah basically you know he seems to be unwilling to accept the idea of becoming a limited monarch we talked before about how important autocracy mm -hmm. right. was to the czars uh so rather than you know compromise what he sees as the purity of of his office he just abdicates and then now, this you know, is this is the point where you would usually get a military junta right this is the point yeah. where a military coup result you know that, that's what happened in in chile uh, that's mm -hmm. what happened. It happens in South America all the time, it seems like. <laughs> but, but, you know, this is the point where usually the military comes in, takes over, usually get a military dictator. What happens in Russia? Basically, the sort of quasi-parliament takes over, temporarily, at least. Which is kind of weird. Why does that happen? Honestly, I, I think a big part of it is that most of the military didn't really know what to do. <laughs> Because um, you had massive... They had no interest in... Nobody wants to govern Russia, is yeah, what it comes yeah. down to. And, <laughs> and it, I think part of it is that most of the officers are probably still at least moderately monarchist in their right. outlook. They, you know, they, they don't really want to get rid of the czar, but they know that and, their and men are just done with everything, basically. Their men just want to go I think home. that's the that's the pivotal part here, is the degree yeah. to which officers had sort of lost control of their men. Because typically, yeah. if you have a military junta, you know, military coup of a government, it's led by those who are in military leadership, right? It's not right. led by the average soldier. That's not no. the case here. Because of this, this rampant anti-German sentiment that's already spreading, this coup is essentially a capitulation of the military officers to their men. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's going to be very important because Bolshevism basically comes from the army more than anything. It comes from people agitating, sort of radicalizing common soldiers toward this vague, like, you know, they're not specific about what they're really talking about. Because uh, even at this you point, can't average... I mean, that, that's part of the whole thing with Marxism is it's got yeah, a yeah. sort of an eschatological bent of here's where we're going in the future. It's going to be a glorious classless utopia, but we can't tell you too much about it or... <laughs> you'll probably see that it's kind of stupid. Yeah. Even at this point, the average Russian is not really particularly interested in communism, but they are interested in ending the war. That's probably point number one. And yeah. point number two, they're tired of taking orders. So there's a big drive for like, we want sort of local councils to have authority. That's literally what Soviet right. means is council. Um, uh -huh. And so... And, and, interestingly, obviously mm -hmm. communism, at least pre-Stalin is an internationalist movement. Yeah. Actually kind of cuts against the uh the zeitgeist right now for you know <laughs> of, of the period that we're talking about. Yeah, definitely. Uh your yeah, your average person on the street in Europe isn't very much of an internationalist mindset. They're very much thinking about 
their nation. Um, that's sort of the, right. the, the popular mood. Um, well, and then that is the movement. That's the anti-Czarist movement in Russia too. It's not an internationalist yeah. movement. It's a yeah, very and, much and a, so pretty early a nativist on, one. Yeah, and and pretty early on, you get uh, we, we talked about ethnic minorities in the Russian Empire. You they sort of seize this moment. Poland, Finland, a few other areas uh, where they're the you know the majority of people are not Russians but have been in Russia. Uh, basically say, all right, here's our chance. We want to out of this. And mm -hmm. the, the Duma, that sort of parliamentary body, basically can't uh, exert any real authority. Uh, and so it, Because know, they never had any because of officially right. enshrined autocracy. I mean, that is... Right. So, you know, often, and we talked about this in our French Revolution series, oftentimes the safe bet, if you're trying to transition a society from one thing to another, is, well, look at the English Revolution. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. The English uh, Civil War. Civil War, yeah. Yeah, you pick one of the the, the pre-existing, already in place government bodies over and against another. In that case, it was Parliament versus the King, right? And Parliament yeah. wins. You're able. There's lots of problems, but you're able to have a somewhat stable government. They remain a prosperous society in the next couple centuries because the 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 entity that continues governing is one that already existed. So, in a sense, they're getting part of it right here in yeah. Russia because they're picking a pre-existing governmental entity. Problem is because their structure of government legally enshrined the Tsarist autocrat, Duma wasn't really ever a government. It just right. looked like one. <laughs> and one one thing that they did that I think is a massive, massive misstep, and I think it, it sort of lays the, the whole groundwork for the tragedy that follows is they basically say, we're not going to deal with figuring out how this whole government thing works on a constitutional level until after the war. Um, uh -huh. And so they keep delaying calling basically a constitutional convention. Um, yep. Which so, America, you know, not to the same extent, but America actually made the same mistake early on. You know, we, yep. we stuck with the Articles of Confederation all through the war, even though we knew there were fundamental defects with it. To our credit, we did have the Articles of Confederation. Yeah, there was Russia, Russia didn't even have that much. No, it, it was it was just sort of, you know, a group of people who had been elected, but they'd been elected to positions that basically didn't have power. But uh -huh. they just sort of like said, an advisory well, board. Yeah. Well, we're, we're running the show now and no one's entirely clear on what that means. So you've got anyway, you've got the Duma occupying part of sort of the seat of government. And what's interesting is you have this group of mutineers occupying the other wing of the palace basically mm -hmm. and they're just kind of you know this uneasy situation there and that's where we get lenin arriving on the scene so vladimir yeah, so, so just to be clear lenin. what is this group of mutineers what is that this mm -hmm. is well it's, 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 not like, it's not like they have two it's not like a bicameral legislature it's not like a senate no. and a house they, they have no. a duma and they, they basically have the competitor have some, you know if yeah so <laughs> if like the duma rebelling... is coke the other one's Pepsi, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, it, it's literally like rebelling soldiers and sailors and a bunch of communist agitators who joined them. Uh huh. Uh, completely yeah, op unofficial. opportunists that. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, they just set up shop. Uh, but mm -hmm. onto that scene, which is a classic uh, hallmark of not having a government when right. when you have two competing ones. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean it's, it's happened in America. It happened in Rhode Island. Um, they asked the That's Supreme true. Court to come and resolve it for them. That's it's happened. 
in, in the 1876 election, I think it happened in a couple of the southern states. It's, it's happened before. It's not unheard of, but it's never an ideal situation, to no. be sure. <laughs> so Lenin had been living in Switzerland. Basically, uh, you know, I, I think we mentioned most of the communists had left Russia before World War One. Um, so he was in Switzerland. The Germans put him on a train and send him back to Russia, hoping that he'll bother everyone enough and cause disruption and cause the collapse of the Russian war effort. Right. Um, Just as sort of a an espionage kind of thing, right? You know. It's... Yeah. Yeah, and uh, that you, you know, want to take probably... down our enemy and make it easier to win. Yeah. Long term, uh, they they probably big had swing to and a miss there. That. Yeah. You know, big <laughs> swing and a miss on that one. That was a gross miscalculation. Um, but that uh, ended up creating them a lot more problems in the long run than it solved. Yeah. And Lenin shows up <laughs> and he starts promulgating. He's got these April theses, he calls them. And he, you know, he talks about them in speeches and he has them published yep. in Pravda, which is the uh, the bullshit Truth. newspaper. Truth mm-hmm. media, right? Yeah. <laughs> truth media. That's that's what Pravda means is truth. Uh, and it mm-hmm. was newspaper. So that's truth media. Yeah. I'm not making and- a comment there. and what you'll see is basically that the he this is really the period where he wins full leadership of the russian communists there had always been some kind of division but this is sort of his shining moment he shows up on the scene he's the only one with a real sort of program and communists have always been and this is something where even institutes like lex rex could learn from the filthy degenerate (laughs) commies (laughs) <laughs> but they've always been real good at messaging. They can make a real succinct, simple message, and they can spread it like wildfire. And that's kind of what his theses are. We're going to take yeah. sort of a deep dive into those now. Is that right, David? Yeah. Uh, or as deep as we can get while, you know, keeping this to a reasonable length. But uh, Okay. Let, let me pull them up. I want, for people who are watching this on video, I want them to be able to read it. So here we go. Organized is spelled wrong. It's uh, the British spelling, and th- these aren't these aren't the hmm. full ones. To be fair, these are these are basically my summation of the ten theses. Sure. But you can follow along with it. The first one is the war effort should be abandoned unless all power is transferred to the proletariat. The most widespread campaign for this view must be organized in the army at the front. Yeah. So this is what we were talking about. You know, where people are broadly dissatisfied. Yeah. They don't like that a bunch of elites are telling them what to do. you got to transfer power for the prosecution of the war to the proletariat. Who's the proletariat? We have, have we explained that yet? I don't think we have. Uh, basically, urban laborers. Um, yeah. And uh, we'll, we'll see that. Who, that better, becomes... who better to prosecute a war than yeah. well, in, people you who, know... make, who make things in factories? And uh, that, that's we're already sort of seeing hints that uh, this is going to be all about sort of exploiting the chaos uh, in order to gain advantage for the communists rather than uh, to actually sort of maintain Russia's interests in any clear way. Um, but, yeah, so basically, the, you know, we have to demand either an immediate end to the war, um, which would basically just mean surrendering because there's no way that the, the Germans are going to leave at this point. Uh-huh. Or... Right. Full communist control, basically. That, that's the alternative that's being proposed here. And the second thesis is basically the same, but a little bit more theoretical, mm-hmm. saying that we're in the middle of a revolution right now. The first stage of that revolution is passing, right? So that yeah. first stage in which the bourgeoisie controls, and it would have been very, very easy to 
with a little bit of a hand wave, associate Germans with the bourgeoisie <laughs> because they're they're a very industrialized society. They're a very wealthy society. So, you know, that would have been easy to do. We want power to pass out of their hands into the hands of the bourgeois, I'm sorry, of the proletariat and the poorest sections of the peasants. Yeah. And that yeah. sort of question of the peasants, because you'll note there, he says only the poorest of the peasants. That's going to be a huge, uh, a huge thing in, in the history of the Soviet Union. Uh, prosperous peasants had a very Kulaks. rough time. Yeah. <laughs> We'll, Gosh, we'll probably talk about that a bit. Either. We'll probably uh, talk about a, a, that a bit uh, in the next episode. But thesis, all right, three. thesis number three: yeah. no support mm-hmm. for the provisional government, a government of capitalists. That makes a lot of sense, considering he's in the competing entity. Um, yeah, literally like a member of that body. <laughs> yeah, so he's not going to be a supporter of the Duma. Uh, uh huh. And then thesis four. Which and okay, this is this one's a really easy one to convince people of too, because legislatures are always very unpopular, especially yeah. when they're totally ineffectual, as is the case here. So that's a really easy one to get support behind. It doesn't have a lot of substance to it. At least that, you know, I think the average person looking at this would have thought it didn't. Turned out that they were actually kind of willing to back that up later, but mm-hmm. you, you can see why they'd get support behind that one. Fourth. Fourth thesis, the masses must be made to see that the Soviets of workers' deputies are the only possible form of revolutionary government, and that therefore our task is, as long as this government yields to the influence of the bourgeoisie, to present a patient, systematic, and persistent explanation of the errors of their tactics. Yeah, so... So the only real government are these Soviets. We've explained those before in our French Revolution series, but basically those are hierarchical government in which... um, Think of it as sort of a Russian nesting doll, right? Where <laughs> literally, literally the, the Soviets are <laughs> right. <laughs> the Soviets are organized from groups uh, at the lowest level, usually local workers' councils, and they yeah. report up to one above them, above them, above them, and it goes all the way up to the Central Politburo. And that's the only legitimate government. But Lenin recognizes they're not a government yet. So currently, what they need to do is write angry letters. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that is sort of the only valid and legitimate thing for them to do at this point. And that's how you know they're the real government. Yeah. And I, I want to note, too, here that clearly the plan is to undermine the Duma. So, the, you know, the, the only chance uh-huh. that they're really going to have at a sort of moderate liberal reform of their government in the form of something like a parliamentary system or, you know, maybe some other kind of Republican system from the beginning, the communists are saying, nope, we have to just poke at that so that no one trusts it and it can't stand up. Uh, right. So, you know. Uh, and then this next doing. one, here's where we start <laughs> getting real radical. So we don't want a parliamentary republic. A return to a parliament would be retrograde, right? So yep. we instead want to keep the Soviet workers, deputy, Soviets of workers, deputies, uh, agricultural laborers, peasants, deputies throughout the country from top to bottom. Not bottom to top, top to bottom. <laughs> yep. No, that, that's significant because... No, no, you're, you're right. You're right. <laughs> and, and that's going to... The only legitimate rule is going to be through this Soviet system, right? Where things mm-hmm. are divided along that Soviet uh, hierarchical model we described, which is going to necessitate the abolition of the police, army, and bureaucracy. Which... um. 
if you know anything about the subsequent history of the Soviet Union, there's some irony there because pretty much I the think only... they would argue they did that. No, they would argue they did that. David. They, they would argue they did that. But what things really flourished in the Soviet Union other than police, especially secret police, <laughs> the military and <laughs> armies bureaucrats. and bureaucrats. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the difference, David, is those were organized in terms of the Soviet structure now. So they right. weren't actually police. Those were just the people. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> Handy. <Yeah. that. laughs> I mean, they call it. That's why they call it the People's Army. Yeah. Um, and then it's, you know, you, you have the Central Bureau of so on and so forth, which I guess is a bureaucracy because it's a bureau. But <laughs> it's... Yep. Mm-hmm. It's it's not um, it's not organized under the czar any longer. It's theoretically supposed to be composed of we the people with our with we the people's consent. But uh-huh. I mean, it's sort of we the people represented by the dictatorship of the proletariat. And who's the embodiment of that? Well, the same guy who was writing this. Yep. <laughs> which is convenient. Okay, thesis number six. Ooh, okay. Nationalization mm-hmm. of all lands in the country. The land to be disposed of by the local Soviets of agricultural laborers and peasants deputies. Yeah. And uh, this one, this one is the, the probably the most openly and sort of recognizably communist. Like, this is what we all sort of think of. Well, the we previous about... one as well, I'd say. But... Well, f- fair enough. But in terms of like an economic program. Um, yeah, yes. Yeah. Seizing and redistributing land. And we've talked before about how communism wasn't particularly popular, but uh, you know what else wasn't particularly popular with the Russian people was um, large estate holders who had been feudal lords and just sort of kept that property. Nobody so really fix that, liked them. <laughs> what'll fix that is a single landowner, yeah. the largest of all, but yeah. <laughs> we'll make sure that it's administered by local Soviet councils mm-hmm. because that'll be fair. Yep. Mm-hmm. Nothing has ever gone wrong with nationalizing land. Um. <laughs> and then here's the next one. It's sort of the Bernie Sanders program. Mm-hmm. The immediate. So, so it's, you know, nobody likes banks, right? Banks are bad. Banks devalue our currency. Uh, banks take our money. tend yeah. to because, well, because they issue money first, they tend to get all of the new value of the first money. And then everybody else gets that money only after its value has been depleted. A lot of things that aren't just about banks, you know, unjust about banks, rather. What's the solution to this problem? Well, just ask Bernie Sanders. The immediate union of all banks in the country into a single national bank and the institution of control over it by a Soviet of workers' deputies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That was the problem, competition. Yeah, when, uh, when influential banks are a problem... Clearly, the solution is to make one bank that holds all the power. One, one all-powerful bank. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that's. This isn't an economy or an economics podcast. No, but uh... I don't like. There's a lot that could be said about that. That is a deeply stupid idea, and that's not like that's not even a political comment. That's math, right? I mean, mathematically, this doesn't work. Yeah. And uh, it's it's worth noting a continuous problem for the Soviets throughout their history was that their own people didn't trust the value of their own currency. And so the, right. one of the main things that the KGB did was try to find people who were keeping foreign currencies and uh, confiscate it from them and punish them for doing that. 
Because <laughs> apparently diffusion of banks was the problem. But anyway, thesis number yeah. seven. Oh, wait, that's what I just read. Yeah. Um, thesis number eight, to bring production and distribution of products at once under the control of the Soviet workers' deputies. Yeah. No more private factories. Mm-hmm. No more private production of any kind. This will also be administered by the same bureaus that are centrally organized, locally administered, as everything else. Yeah. Why was this popular? Uh, it wasn't really, except among people who were already communists. <laughs> uh, that makes so, sense. You know, you know th- there's a reason why this was distributed in the communist newspaper and not in a, a different newspaper. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, but it's, the, it's it's called truth, so you know it's true. Yeah, the the way they really... You know, when they call their paper truth. <laughs> you honestly, don't get the fake news in this one. Yeah. The way they really gained support was by agitating in the army at the front saying, hey, the, the Bolsheviks, they're the ones who want peace. They're the ones who want to end this war. We should support them. That was, I think, really the, the sort of the key to all of this. Well, and, and, we'll and it, it really we'll is. Support. I mean, I'm kind of mean spiritedly making the comparison to Bernie Sanders and his supporters, but it really is very, very similar to that. He's a much like his movement. He's addressing real problems. People can't help but recognize. And then yeah. his solutions are just, you know, insane. Like, I mean, I, I think that the appeal of the movement has nothing to do with the solutions to the problems. It has to do with yeah. the fact that they're the main group that's talking about the problems. Yeah. Because if you thought about the solutions for two seconds, you'd know that they weren't good ideas. Yeah. Except, I mean, then, they're good ideas for Lenin, but not for <laughs> other people. And, uh, yeah. So 9 and 10 are sort of more about communist uh, party politics than, uh, than anything yeah. else, but... Um, so when was the last international held? What, what, first, what is the communist international? What's common term? Uh, the idea, which I think we actually did, we mention this last time. I know we talked about the fact that the Russian Revolution really had to reverse thinking about agricultural versus urban workers. But another thing that that we did talk about that, them yeah. is uh, that traditionally Marxism held that the only way communism could come about was when workers of the world unite uh so everyone sort of rising up at once all of the workers in you know the advanced world have to come together now there had been previous attempts at sort of joining together in an international fraternity of workers and holding sort of a convention like you know think of it like international comic con uh, in san diego (laughs) but but for commune it's comic con instead of comic con and you know, it's it, it's ostensibly international. Obviously, Karl Marx lived most of his life, lived most of his professional life, at least, in London. So it kind mm-hmm. of started as a London movement. And they'd held several of these before. I think the first was in 1864, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And Lenin was saying, we got to have more Kamekans. We got to get everybody yeah. <laughs> together so we can plan this this international workers' revolution. Yeah, because in this was really critical to everything at this time they thought russia didn't have a chance on its own of establishing a communist right. order but they also thought hey world war one is such a crisis for so many of the world's great economies and in, in you know powerful countries that we have a chance at kicking off just like a general sort of workers revolt against the whole modern world so yep. they thought they could trigger uprisings in germany and france and i, I think they were Quickly always a little less that confident under about Stalin. england but, that's, uh, 
Yeah, they quickly revised that under Stalin. Uh, once Lenin's yes. gone, but Len Lenin was always international. You know, he always yep. wanted that international revolution, and mm -hmm. to that end, he wanted another common turn. So that's yes. The, the first common turn in 1919 ends up being referred to as the third international, uh, right. because I don't know they're counting 1864. I don't know which other one they're counting because there were several before that. Yeah, but for whatever ideological reasons, they only count a couple <laughs> of them. <laughs> right, because it's it's not really an international movement. It's kind of just people who agree with us. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Anyway, and and you know, lo and behold, Russia ends up hosting every single international after that. So. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna sort of elide like America. America always wins the World Series. Yeah. No, that's a that's a good point. It's like <laughs> the World Series of communism, and it's basically uh, yeah. Russia and then whatever Cuba uh, eventually. China's and, usually and, not invited. The, the other little uh, Soviet republics that they pretend are independent, but are actually just oh, you know, that's true. That's of true. Russia. Um, yeah. Anyway, so the the sort of the real moment where the Bolsheviks come to power is what they call the October Revolution. So you had the February one already, and uh, for a few months, the Duma is kind of hanging on, mostly not. It's sort are of we getting to the authority. October Revolution today? Just we're gonna skip a lot of of the history, but uh, basically, the thing I want to point out that's important is when the the Duma finally does call for you know basically a constitutional convention. Um, so they hold elections across Russia for you know people who are gonna be sent as delegates to this constitutional convention. The Bolsheviks have been pushing for this forever. They only win like twenty percent of the vote, and so then they think, uh oh. Mm. and they said <laughs> maybe men. that parliament would have been so good for you after all because with the with the <laughs> parliament 20 percent can actually gain control but yeah you didn't but, want that <laughs> no and it's it's probably not enough to actually implement a communist system uh so no, instead no. of allowing this constitutional convention to happen they send armed men in to basically disperse it uh at gunpoint <laughs> and uh, uh -huh. that's, that's always that's an option i suppose <laughs> that's basically the october revolution we'll probably talk more uh, about the the nitty-gritty a little bit next time but we're mostly gonna be you know an, an idiot might say there's parallels to that in our contemporary history too <laughs> well perhaps <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> anyway that would be very silly uh, <laughs> We're not going to we'll, do that. We'll, 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 get <laughs> into, we'll get into the details and into the actual constitution that the Soviets end up bringing about yeah, so uh, next time around. Next week, we're going to look at the Soviet constitution. Remember, just as the late Justice Scalia, I'm going to quote him horribly out of context, make him look horrible. But he, he this is the constitution where he claimed they had a much better Bill of Rights than we do. Uh -huh. But we'll look at that next week, see if that's true. See why that Bill of Rights seems not to have worked terribly well uh we'll take a we'll take a good look at some of the more egregious articles of that constitution one made very famous by alexander solzhenitsyn and if you want to check out a book on the lex rex reading list uh we'll be adding alexander solzhenitsyn's gulag archipelago to our mm -hmm. website so that you can purchase a copy of that uh, with a small donation and I, I think it's highly worth a read if you have several hundred hours <laughs> yeah are we going to use the abridged version or the unabridged i think that's the big question <laughs> unabridged unabridged okay for sure. all right yeah that that's yeah. a that's a time commitment but uh i like solzhenitsyn uh, uh his fiction as well 
but I think we ought to pair it with the Communist Manifesto, which you know is about that thick. You can read it in an afternoon. <laughs> show show what that horrible book gave rise to. You know, it's anyway. That that's um. So for our February Revolution episode, mm-hmm. that's about it. Uh, do we have Kangaroo Court today, David? We do. Uh, so if you want to. Oh well. Uh, come around, young and old, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, everybody who's interested, I guess, you know, non-binary people, if you're listening, everybody who's interested in law throughout the ages and in all of its absurdity, join us for Captain Kangaroo. Yeah, and, uh, this is, this is shaping up to be another long episode, so, uh, I'm gonna keep this relatively short and sweet, but, uh, this is, this is gonna be a little interactive. So I'm about to, you know, sort of give some information on a few lawsuits, uh, probably three or four, somewhere somewhere in the neighborhood. But what I'd like you to do when I've described all of them is award one, the, the sort of award of most creative and one, the most plausible. Okay. So those are the two, those are the two things to keep in mind here. You want me to do this at the end or after each one? At the, at the end. So, you know, we'll, we'll describe. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Go for it. All right. So, first up, we have a woman who I believe I, I read in a different article is an attorney. But uh, she filed a $5 million class action suit in federal court against a repo company. Uh, and this uh, came about because they repossessed, excuse me, her 2008 Pontiac G6 while it still had half a tank's worth of That's gas. That's a good in car. It. <laughs> That's a really good car. I don't I don't know if you heard that key that key phrase though. There was still half a tank of gas in it when they repoed it. Ah, okay. Um she says uh, or excuse me, her attorney says it's the same as if you left your jacket in there and they didn't return it to you. You can't take someone's coat or fuzzy dice and you have to return the gas. Or at she, least compensate for it. I I, t- I tend to agree with that. She she came uh, she came up with this five million dollar figure, and again, bear in mind one one you're going to award most creative, the other you're going to yeah. award most plausible. Or I guess it actually could be both. They could be both most plausible and most. Okay, creative. fair but, enough. Fair enough. Uh, five million dollars represents three times the fair market value of all the gas taken from Michigan residents by the Detroit-based automotive financial services company over the past. Punitive damages, I assume. Yeah. Uh, yeah, tr- treble damages for. Some some provision of Michigan law, probably. Yeah. Uh, additionally, they're asking for all that gas to be returned or compensated at fair market value. <laughs> yeah. Probably, um, probably, probably the compensation is more likely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that that's the first suit. I, I think that I think that's correct. You know, when they have a legal right to repossess your car, they have a right to possession of the vehicle. They don't have a lien on your gasoline. Yep. Uh, here, interestingly enough, the, uh, <laughs> the guy bringing the suit here was named Overton, um, which, uh, for the, for those familiar So is it within the Overton window, window or? Uh, well, <laughs> I, I think not personally, but I'll get your opinion on it. Okay. Well. Um, he sued the Anheuser-Busch Pretty wide Company. nowadays, so. <laughs> yeah. He sued the Anheuser-Busch Company, which makes, you know, Budweiser, among other things, basically because <laughs> their ads made it seem like if you drank Bud Light, pretty ladies would want to hang out with you. And they also didn't mention in their commercials that beer can be addictive and bad for your health. Oh my gosh. 
Okay, uh, now I got to clarify. Under ordinary common law rules of negligence, I think this guy would have no case at all. Mm-hmm. There may be some kind of ridiculous statutory modification saying that people that fail to warn about the addictive properties of alcohol are liable per se for something. That's the only way that I, I think liability could ever attach here. Yeah, well, the, the, the courts... The, the classic the, way of advertising stuff is to say that pretty girls will like you if you use it. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah, how, the, that's how you advertise. The, the court found... Let's make, make a note of that. We'll do that in our marketing, David. <laughs> the court found in favor of Anheuser-Busch. Which, by case. the way, she said yes uh, over the weekend, so not Oh, that's right, untrue. that's right, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I already uh, talked to you since then, so I, and yeah. I forgot that we had mentioned that uh, on the first part of this recording. <laughs> but, uh, yes, congratulations to you and best wishes to her. So if you uh, advocate for the Constitution, I, I can say from experience. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the pretty anyway. girls will like you. That's <laughs> Yeah, and that's the conclusion. Anyway. Maybe uh, I'm going to get sued now. Who knows? <laughs> could, could be. Overton, I believe, was, was seeking $10,000, so significantly less uh, than that $5 million suit. That's barely worth the legal fees. But, uh, yeah, he, he did not win on that case. Makes Next sense. one up. Uh, a Portland, Oregon man tried to sue Michael Jordan and Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, for a combined $832 million. And Ooh. the reason why is that... He apparently bears enough of a resemblance to Michael Jordan that people kept asking him if he is Michael Jordan. And, and that's Nike's he found this, fault. He found this so irritating, yes, because he, he believed that the Air Jordan yeah, no, brand... Nobody would have known who Michael Jordan was <laughs> if not for the Air Jordan brand, right? That's... Yeah. He, he alleged that the Air Jordan brand, which is you know a subsidiary thing of it's Nike... Not, it's not like they picked him to advertise for their shoe... <laughs> No. <laughs> out of some kind of pre-existing fame. Nobody watches basketball, right? I mean, that's that's a name that is so famous, even I know it. The man was in Space Jam. <laughs> uh, in the, you know, the Chicago Tribune perhaps unkindly notes that um, <laughs> this guy, uh, whose name uh, is Alan Heckard, is six inches shorter than Michael Jordan. Um, but... Um, <laughs> He he does have a shaved head and he does wear an earring in his left ear, which was a look that Michael Jordan was rocking for a while. Um, but uh, yeah, he wanted more than four hundred dollars, uh, more than four hundred million dollars from each of Michael for... Jordan and the founder of Nike. What is he suing? Like appropriating his likeness? What's he suing? Uh, I believe that yes, that was basically the idea. I think this was immediately dismissed. Uh, but, yeah, uh, there's failure to state the claim. That's... Yeah. Uh, I think that was the the basic idea, yeah. That they they were infringing on his likeness, despite the fact that uh-huh. it's just two people who look like each other. <laughs> he just happens to look a little bit similar yeah. to Michael Jordan. Yep. All I, right. love, and, I love the idea that's like you know because because whenever you file a lawsuit, you want to make sure that you're suing everybody who's potentially liable for the wrongdoing, so that people don't mm-hmm. just point fingers and say it wasn't my fault, it was their fault. You should have sued them instead. I love yep. the idea that it's somehow Nike's fault. You know, that's <laughs> you just got to be safe here. You got to sue them too. Yeah. And not, uh, not the company, the guy that runs it. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I, I'm not even sure he was still in charge of Nike at the time. I'm not sure if Phil Knight is still uh, actively involved at all. Um, but, you know, who knows? He's the most famous name associated with Nike, I guess. I don't know the, if I'd on call that one creative so much as just incompetent. <laughs> all right. Well, our last one, you know, my, my gut feeling is that this is the most creative one, but I'll, I'll leave that to you. Um. A convicted kidnapper suing his hostages 
on the basis that he entered into an oral contract with them for them to keep him hidden from the police. And then when he fell asleep on their couch, they ran away and called the cops and he ended up being injured in his arrest. So he, he found a lawyer who would bring this. Well, he they sued him in civil court for emotional. Oh, so he's countersuing. He's, so his okay, countersuit, yes, was that he. No, that, they, that's he, that's a little more plausible. Yeah. <laughs> but he he came, you know, he broke into their house. He was on. He was already wanted in connection with a murder case. Uh-huh. So he had fled, I, I think, from Colorado and gone to Kansas, running from the police. Yeah. He enters this couple's house, holds them at knife point, and he says, "You got to uh-huh. hide me from the cops. They're coming to get me." And yeah, illegality is um, will void a contract. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, he he claims <laughs> that he promised them money, an indeterminate amount of money, but some well, amount. Yeah, of money. you you need to be able to at least allege consideration because <laughs> if you don't, there's no contract. That's. Uh, and <laughs> I'm, what, I'm what, sure I can't imagine the complaint on it. it. Just goes through the elements of the contract, and it's like, well, <laughs> here's an offer. Here's when they accepted. Here's the consideration. Yeah. You know. Um, what I think is, is interesting is that evidently what this couple did was gave him some snacks and watched a movie with him, Patch Adams, the, the Robin Williams movie where he's like a clown doctor. Naturally, naturally um, Patch Adams. But then he, uh, probably, you know, having been awake for a long time, fleeing from the police, he fell asleep on their couch and then they just ran away and called the cops, which, uh, you know, I think yeah, logical move on their part. But um, they, yeah. they could have been charged with uh, accessory if they hadn't done that yeah <laughs> you know it's I, iffy on whether or not they'd be convicted but yeah but, <laughs> but they're uh, certainly comforting or aiding somebody in the commission of a crime so or, or, or to help them get away with the crime at least yeah uh so his his that, that was... one's pretty creative i'm gonna give that one most creative okay i don't think it's the most plausible because i, I, I even yeah. though they have alleged consideration my bet is there was there wasn't any uh, they're uh-huh. just making that up. I don't think they have any evidence to support that. Verbal contracts tend to be very difficult to enforce because of parole evidence rule. Um, yep. Not to, not to mention, with, clearly under duress, if you're being forced to enter into this contract at knife point. Yeah, under duress, there's supervening illegality in this. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. Any number of things that would void the contract. Despite, I, I'm just talking, you know, I don't even think it's valid. You got to get to formation first. You have to see if a valid contract is formed. And then at that point, you can see if anything voids it. I don't yep. even think a valid contract's formed here. So I think that one's not terribly plausible. But I will give it most creative. <laughs> That's fair. And then the first one, I think that, that 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 lady should win. You know, the one that tried to get compensation for the unlawfully seized gasoline. Yeah. I think that she should win that one. All right. That, you know, I, I, I feel kind of proud of myself because those were both sort of my gut instinct uh, <laughs> winners as well. So uh, we, we came in alignment on that. Um, All right. Well, it's... <laughs> There is some some uh, regularity and um, and uh, predictability in Captain Kangaroo Court, I guess. But that's all for this week's folks. That's all for this week, folks. Horribly misspoke there. Uh, thanks right. for watching Captain Kangaroo Court. We hope that you all join us again next week for this weird, wacky, wonderful world of law in wacky land or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, that's all. Uh, one brief announcement before we finish. Yep. I do want to say that our case challenging the Los Angeles County requirement that poll workers obtain vaccination for COVID-19 is now on appeal. We are appealing the decision in that case. So that is a huge matter that's in front of us. And, you know, it may sound like a small issue. It's actually very significant because if this is allowed to be upheld, what that says is that anything for which a county can claim there's some kind of valid health rationale, 
no matter how politically slanted, no matter how much it allows them to bias an election by putting their own people in place and prohibiting other people from participation in the electoral count or administration as a result of their politics, uh, if this gets upheld, those sorts of activities will be upheld. So this is a very important case that we're fighting. Uh, if that's something you feel moved to contribute to, please visit us online at lexrex.org. Yeah. And I think I think that wraps it up for us, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, enjoy our packaged disclaimers, uh, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> All right. See you next week, folks. Or two weeks from now. Or in Sometime. October. Sometime. <laughs> Not in October. We'll be talking about October, though. Yes. All right. Take care. Please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice, and all of the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute. The Lex Rex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you'd like to learn a bit more about our organization's activities or make a donation, please visit our website, www.lexrex.org. L E X R E X.org. As a reminder, this podcast is a legal issues podcast, not a political issues podcast. We try to keep our commentary strictly to legal issues. Today, now that more issues are considered political than ever before, we believe it's especially important to distinguish between the two. Thanks for listening to the Lex Rex Institute podcast, and we'll see you again next week.